0: Start off that way. I'm going to already tell you how my day started. Because when your wife wakes up in a very jovial mood this morning and she calls you a Pharisee, you know. You know that the day is not going to go very well, (laughs) and that may include the sermon. There we go. Let's read the text first. It's a long psalm. I do have time. I'm so happy for that. Sometimes, by the way, consider yourselves fortunate. The Puritans would preach anywhere from two to four hours, their whole service would be. So a few extra minutes today won't bother you. Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to thee. Do not hide thy face from me in the day of my distress. Incline thy ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke. My bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forgot to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican on the wilderness. I have become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have approached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow. I wither away like grass. But thou, O Lord, dost abide forever. And thy name to all the generations. Thou wilt arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely thy servant finds pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth thy glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute, and he has not despised thy prayer. This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That's you and I. For he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who are doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord of Zion and praise him in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord, he has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, O oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old thou hast found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even thy will perish, but thou dost endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. Thou wilt change them, and they will be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. Thy children and thy servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before thee. Gary gave me the topic of suffering. Sometimes I don't know how Gary George thinks, so I'm not even going to try to explain it today. But I'm happy to preach this text, even though it is a long text. It's a text that actually scholars aren't certain about. If you look at Matthew, Henry, you say, this could be a continuation of David's Psalms. But most of the scholars say, no, nah, it can't be. Calvin just goes straight for the throat, you could say, and he says, it's the Babylonian captivity in the time of those sorrows that were created by the enemies. And then you go to Beal and you go to Carson in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they say, we just don't know. Well, we do know one thing. We've all experienced pain and suffering. Suffering is the result of fall of the fall. It is the beginning of pain. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. As a result of the fall, we also experience suffering. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it. Pain and suffering will affect you spiritually, physically. It will affect you emotionally and even psychologically. Every part of you is affected. Your human nature has been, uh, you could say, as the old scholars used to say, you God sown corruption into your nature. Now, granted, God has saved you, and you are here a testimony of God's grace. And because of that, you are one who has a new nature, but that old man is still within you, as Paul describes him. He's given you a new heart. The stone has been cast away and a heart that is malleable, that God may use you and change it and make you and mold you into Christ. The profound difference between a believer and an unbeliever in relationship. I'm having a hard time with this, I apologize. The difference between a Christian and an unbeliever in relationship to pain and suffering is this. You know that you fell with Adam. They do not. Our complaints are more like the psalmists. Because there's a difference between complaining of the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they were judged for it severely and permanently. For you and I, our complaints are like the psalmist. We are pouring our guts out when we are suffering. And God is well pleased with that. He is not ashamed to call you a child of God when you are in great pain and suffering. As you get older, I can testify this, you will experience more of it. I can tell you with a certainty, I did not take any prescription drugs until I was around 45 years old. I soon, after I got Crohn's, literally was on seven pills a day just for my Crohn's. So, it'll start earlier than you would like, Right? Even if you're in good shape now. Without God, pain and suffering will continue for eternity for most. The sorrowful truth of that is found when the fifth angel says, Poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast and his kingdom, and it became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent. All of the sorrow, all of the things that God literally sends to this world and they still would not repent. And yet you and I were in the same lot. Were we not unwilling to repent? Happy in our pleasure and sins. Is this working? Is this working? All right. Happy in our pleasure and sin, as Paul says, and such were some of you. And yet, by the grace of God, as the psalmist even points out, at the time of God being gracious, it was gracious to you and I. The world has made a choice. And there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also to the Greek. But you and I also have a choice. And that is because we know that we will experience pain and suffering. The believer must make this choice. Am I willing to suffer under the effects of the fall and still serve and worship Christ? Will I come to church even and worship him? Will I take up my cross daily and follow him? The tension for the Christian is to live for the glory of God while pain and suffering is going on in your life. Even God may use it and does use it for testing you. Whether it is suffering by your own sin, and many times we suffer because of that, or by others, God has forged a path for us through his son's suffering on the cross. Life can be lived, by the way, even in pain and suffering. I'm sure all of us have examples of those who exceed us in their fortitude and in their faith in order to still be a servant of God while they're in great pain and suffering. We have to ask the question, can a Christian sincerely worship God while he has cancer? We have two people in this church who have already said yes to that. We have seen it in the past. I still have, I have certain people in my life that I have had the pleasure to talk to and to meet with hours before they died. And I can say sincerely to you that I will carry that to my last breath as the encouragement to my own soul to add to my own faith that I can endure even to the end. How does a mother continue in faith after losing a child? My mother lost her child at 37 years old. Not my mother was 37, but my brother died at 37, two months before my wife and I got married. That was a bitter, sweet wedding. And I can tell you that my mother never got over it. My mother never had any hope of eternity, had no any hope for salvation. And I could be embittered by that, even as that was a test even for me when I was young. And then God saved me at 24. How can God call us blessed when we suffer under persecution for our righteousness? Do we even have to know why we suffer all the time in order to suffer well? These are just some of the questions that we take to heart when we're under the pain and suffering. But more likely, as I said, Psalm 102 is from the Babylonian captivity. And the suffering caused by or to the psalmist is by his enemies. But as you could see pretty quickly as I read it to you, that the pain and suffering is very, very personal. It is both physical, it is spiritual, it is emotional to the psalmist. And he is very concerned. That God would hide his face from him. He is desperate in his prayer to God. In the Old Testament, God could remove his love from a person. He could remove his person from another person or his presence. And he also could remove the Holy Spirit from another person. This was the worry of an Old Testament Jew. So the concerns of the psalmist is great. His distress has affected him spiritually, physically. He is weak by fever and pain. These have led to groaning and loneliness and sleepless nights. Have you had sleepless nights? I've had plenty of them. I still like to quote what I did in the Song of Solomon not that long ago. Will you arise even with your fever? say even though my even though I am asleep my heart is awake and my lover is knocking at my door i have entered into his banquet house and his banner over me is love even in those times can we worship and praise him the psalmist is at the end of his rope we see that in verses 23 and 24 he has weakened my strength he has shortened my days i say oh my god do not take me away in the midst of my days. I don't want to end life short, kind of like Hezekiah, right? I don't want to die prematurely. I've got so many plans within my life. Some scholars view that this man may even have a uh, illness unto death, not just uh, fear from his enemies. But for the Jew, we must recognize this as well. And this is part of the interpretation of the Psalm. That the confidence of the Psalmist is in God and not himself. And that is just the opposite of what the world is telling you and teaching you every single day. And for the Jew of the, uh, you could say that's around, well, it's 586, right? So the the fifth century or the sixth century BC that a Jew would also if he were to die short would not see the Messiah come what a loss that would be and so whether this psalm is from a different uh, age or year whether in David's reign of a thousand BC compared to the sixth century we can say that pain is pain and suffering is a suffering and it hurts we might even ask the question as modern-day people even ask today, why do good people suffer? Well, the assumption is, as everyone's a good person. We might even say, doesn't God see my pain and my suffering in my life? Does he even care? That would be a complaint, by the way. Jeremiah, during that time, one of the ones who suffered in the Babylonian captivity, says this in Lamentations, I have forgotten happiness, my soul is bowed down within me, like an owl on a branch. The psalmist says, with his head hanging down, like a bird on a roof hanging its head low, that's a sign of depression, despair, and distress. Therefore, this would be on the minds of Christian. What is God doing? Doesn't he see the length of my pain as well? It's obvious in verses 8 through 11, the greatest cause of the psalmist's pain is his enemies. This leads to an author maybe possibly being Nehemiah, Jeremiah, or Daniel. The enemies of Christians, by the way, are a growing list. And all you have to do is watch the news. And you will find out very quickly. All you have to do is read a book and you will find out very quickly that you are growing in enemies. Now, this will sound like a very odd place to start, but I hope I can make the segue. Patriarchy today is seen as a root cause of the world's ills. It actually confronts and opposes God as creator and His right over his creatures to be able to mold them as he pleases and to also determine the roles in which he has given them. And yet comes along someone like Mary Daly, who is a radical theologian who makes this quote, A person is trapped in patriarchy. I know, Seth Fuller never knew that he was ever trapped. Neither did I. A person is trapped in patriarchy, which is the religion of the whole planet. To be in the fullest sense is to sin. So now every one of us here are sitting in sin. There is no more distinction between male and female. There is no such thing as sex, and everything is fluid. So why would I mention this? Well, partly because I groan like the psalmist because my enemies are now rewriting the script. Partly and mostly because Isaiah spoke about a day very similar to this, when the Assyrians were coming down and defeating the ten northern tribes. And he was a prophet to Judah. And he says, woe to those who make evil good and good evil, who translate darkness into light and light into darkness. Isaiah said, the Lord looked. He looked for justice and he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness and he found distress in the land. And that's what we have. We have distress in the land of a world that has turned upside down, who are now increasing day by day as our enemies. And yes, we have to ask the question, will we have our own spiritual songs and hymns and melodies and also our own prayers that are saying, like the psalmist, I am crying in my affliction. Record it for me. For the posterity that follows after me. You know, another oddity here as an illustration, George Washington was headed to New York because a British armada was literally heading towards Long Island to land ships to take the city. Some of those ships actually went up to the Hudson River and actually when Washington had arrived in New York There were defenses. He fortified the defenses and he determined to be at one spot. And actually, the spot he was at, where the crossroads were, where he took his own defense and his own men who were behind rocks and ditches, was right where Broadway is located today. And here the British come. They unload from those few ships that are there, part of that armada. They begin to come up that hill. They are within 80 yards of George Washington and his troops. He is a sitting duck on top of his horse, first one to get shot. And what happens? His whole army melts right in front of him, just not unlike the Afghani retreat, 300,000 men melting into the desert. He literally has all of his men running past him in retreat. He is so affected by this that General Green says he was so vexed by the conduct of his soldiers. He was a man that just wanted to die. It it took literally the quick response of his aides to literally trot up to him, grab the reins of this general whose head was hanging like a bird on a roof or an owl on a branch, He was a man who was so dejected, his horse was even dejected, hanging its head. They grabbed the reins, and they quickly whisked him away from danger. And he could have been shot at any moment of the time, because a flintlock within 80 yards can kill a man. He was a man who had five generals given to him by the Continental Congress. And of those five generals, four of them would betray him at some period of time within the Revolutionary War. Only Israel Putnam of Connecticut, one of the older and wiser generals were the ones that did not betray him. They would not come sometimes when he sent orders for them to do things. Literally, the enlistments for the regulars uh, in the army for the uh, colonial troops and the regulars was one year. At one point in New Jersey when Washington was there, he had 5,000 men and one day he had 2,000. A man alone, in his sorrows, in his pain. His teeth were not wooden, but wired up of animals' teeth, human teeth, and anything else you could put in there so he could chew. A man dejected and distressed because everyone was forsaking him. It would take Valley Forge for the recovery of an army to be professionally trained and come out of that difficult winter to make an army to defeat a nation a world power sorrow is everywhere pain and suffering is everywhere people letting you down and the greatest the greatest example we have is Christ being left alone after the garden all by himself being forsaken by his disciples that makes the pain even more pronounced, does it not? Feeling alone before God. But we begin to see the hope of the psalmist. We see it in verse 12 and 13. Read along with me. But thou, O Lord, dost abide forever in thy name to all generations. Thou wilt arise and have compassion on Zion, For it is time to be gracious to her. Now, I'm going to say something that his eyes are going to bug out of his head, who's someone sitting here in this room. I didn't have time to actually talk to him. I was more thinking about other things, of course. But I can tell you there was a day that I was hunting just last fall, and it was a beautiful morning. My buddy and I, a Christian friend of mine, went hunting. And we were in our stands for about an hour. The sun had come up. The mist had uh, been driven away, and we were enjoying the day. And then I hear a gunshot. And then I pick up the phone because, obviously, my buddy is ringing me. He says, Todd, Todd, there's three deer coming your way, and I also got one. Grab my gun off the nail. It's got a strap to carry it on my shoulder. I'm ready for the deer, and then I hear ding, ding. And I'm like, is he calling me back? I pick up my phone, and I look, and it has nothing to do with the deer. But it's Gary George saying that Fred Spielman is at the door of death, that he is only hours away of being intubated. Sorry to use it today, Fred, but I'm going to use it. And so I had a choice. It's partly humorous, but it applies to what I'm trying to tell you. I'm here with the gun. I'm ready for deer. I'm reading the phone, and I say, there's something more important than the deer coming. I hang that on the nail. I lift up my arms, and I say, Lord, it's time for you to be gracious. Now, I really didn't quote the psalm, but that for all intents and purposes, is what I was doing for my dear brother. It is time for God to be gracious in your sorrow and your pain. Can you count on him? And the answer is yes. I can only tell Fred Spielman that he owes me a (laughs) stake because there were 30 or 40 stakes that just went over the hill that I had no (laughs) chance of getting. True story true story never told you Fred so we ask the question what has come that brings the psalmist relief God has come and he will come with his only begotten son and therefore from this point from verses 12 and 13 the rest of the psalm teaches us this hope when you are in your despair look up and look For God and his son. The first phase. And there's only two phases. This is the the practical portion of the psalm. The first phase that you go through. That is your recovery. Or your, your striving for recovery. So that you might be useful to the master. In the midst of your suffering. Is this. It's prayer. The second. Discipline and means of grace that God has given you in the midst of your sorrow and suffering is praise. So what about the first one? Well, let me tell you what suffering, I should say not suffering, but what prayer is not. Prayer is not yoga and meditation that is incorporated within it. Medi- uh, I should say yoga, yoga and meditation, that discipline connected with it. Yoga is Quote, the training of the consciousness for a state of perfect spiritual insight and tranquility. Prayer is not that. Prayer is sober-mindedness. It's not like a mantra where you empty the mind. It's prayer that fills you with the word of God that fills your mind. And therefore, and I remember GN Sabath, her husband is John Sabath of Wellington Baptist Church, and I can tell you with a certainty she has been in pain and suffering that makes my my bad back like kids' stuff. Literally so. She, if she goes out of the house for a day or two, stays in her bed for three days following because her pain is so great, and she's been doing this for decades. And yet, she says to me one day, because I was going through some suffering with my own physical problems, she says, "You prayed up." I said, "What do you mean, Jan? You prayed up?" She goes, "Are you filled up?" I said, "What do you mean you filled up?" She filled with the Word of God, so at the time you don't feel like praying. you don't feel like thinking and meditating upon a Word of God. It is already in there for the Spirit of God to use to enjoin himself, himself with your spirit in order to lift you up in a time when you do not have the strength to do so? Are you filled up? Are you prayed up? Prayer also, by the way, is not mindfulness. The newest kid on the block block, the last five, ten years. Mindfulness is the mental state focusing on the present moment. Well, if this is going to benefit anybody, let me tell you, the present moment for the psalmist is despair. No mindful act is going to take him from his pain, his fever, and his sleepless nights. He needs God. My suffering is so great, the psalmist says. He says this, He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised my prayer. There's the difference between what the world offers you and what God gives you. Because the world, ask your local yoga teacher, do you believe you're depraved? By the way, the word destitute here, literally in the Hebrew means naked and poor. Do you think anybody in the world would actually call themselves um, naked and poor and depraved? Those without God, with no hope, without God in the world, As Paul says to the Ephesians, blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they shall see God. The one who is humbled by the very suffering that God brings is the one who actually sees God. He sees himself as God sees him and her. God gives grace to the humble and he is opposed to the proud. And therefore, The psalmist is not proud at all, but in his humility, he finds his answers through prayer. God looks at your prayers. He sees you when you pray them. He hears you. The Spirit of God, by the way, Christ knows the mind of the Spirit. He brings your groanings to God, to the Son who presents them to the Father, and he hears you. The psalmist says, thou wilt arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her. The only thing that we have a difficulty with is God's timing to relieve us, right? I'm sure Kathy would say, God, why did you let me get to that very end where I was so worried about Fred? Right? Right? Does God despise your prayer? Absolutely not. He loves you for it. At the right time, God showed his graciousness to Job when his friends did not give him the proper counsel. At the right time, God gave uh, Moses the grace of God and was gracious to him in the despair that he experienced in the wilderness. At the right time, when Abraham was without any heir and wanted to give the blessing to his servant, what did God do? At the proper time, he was gracious to him. He did the same thing for Elijah, giving him a tree for shade, a brook for water, a raven to feed him, and yes, as the psalmist was crying out, I need my sleep. And he gave it to him. At the right time, God will show you his glory in being gracious to you. Our prayers are not for ourselves alone, but for the body of Christ as well. For we must be attentive when God shows his glory in his church. The healings, the close calls, the sickness, the love, the care for one another. This is the glory of God's spirit showing us and preserving us in faith. We must be disturbed to action in order to help those in need. That we might see the evidence of faith in our own selves because God is producing it within us through our prayers, and our trust in him. This is like a marriage. That, like marriage for richer or for poorer, and in sickness and in health, we keep our covenant relationship with God and saying, I'll wait for the time of grace. Right? The psalmist says in verse 18, And this will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. He is already provided, but also will provide for the generation yet to come. And also by using the same testings, the same sufferings, the same sorrows in many different ways through enemies. The main physical maladies that we all will experience throughout our lives to prove another generation, to bring us relief and then show his grace to us through it. It is with the individual Christian that the church's groanings are heard before God's throne. A faithful prayer for church secures the foundation of the next generation of believers, and it is Christ's suffering for you that is the keystone for your relief. It is the chastisement of our peace that was upon him on the cross. He was despised and forsaken of men and acquainted with grief for you and I so we can endure our own grief as we follow him and take up our own cross, right? It is not easy to be a Christian. You already know that. We tell people, you must follow me. They already know this cross, and you're telling me I must take up that cross. I don't know a lot about it, but I don't want to give up anything, right? They already innately know. It's a difficult life, but God enables us to endure it. So the second phase of your relief from your suffering. And by the way, this doesn't mean that God at that time is going to take away suffering momentarily as you pray and then you praise. But it is to say that you know God has a plan for you. Oh, by the way, here's another plan in Acts chapter 13. When you fulfill the purposes of God, you die. At the end of the day, that's a simple thing that God tells us through the Apostle Paul. So, better to be happy, suffer willingly, for Peter says this finds pleasure with God. And to know that He has a perfect will, that there will be a place in heaven in the new heaven and new earth where there will be no more tears and no more sorrows and pain. So we go from suffering to the anticipation of God's grace and then now to the praise to the greatness of God's glory. Now we might, because I'll I'll be honest with you, you may even be disappointed at this moment. You thought maybe I was going to be a little more clever and tell you something that you didn't know. Right? You know, like, Like read your Bible 10 minutes every morning and then pray 20 minutes later and something magically is going to happen to you before you go to work and your cold is going to be gone. (laughs) No, not going to happen. But praise is part of your recovery. Anyone thinks who they're going to get their heart, their spirit, and their mind – out of the doldrums because of the circumstances that God has brought to your life, whether it's physical or spiritual suffering, and thinking that they're going to do it all by themselves in their house at their home, saying, I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like fellowship in the saints. Oh, they invited us over to our house. I know it would probably be great encouragement, but I'm just going to read my Bible. You, for all intents and purposes, are going to withhold delivery from your pain and suffering. And I'm not speaking as a prosperity teacher here, but I'm telling you it is all about understanding your role in suffering with Christ on this earth. And you brought to a place where you're willing to accept whatever God's will is for you and you praise Him anyways. In a very simple way, God has given to us the secret to enduring suffering, which, by the way, isn't a secret if you just simply read your Bible. That is God must be greater in your heart and your mind than the current suffering you are experiencing. And by the way, when you are praising God and you've got a broken leg and you're coming in here or you've got a knee transplant, is that a transplant brother over there? Something like that. And you come worshiping the Lord, you're saying, you know what? This place where the saints gather is a more important place to be than the physical pain of a knee that just got put in with me or a cold that I still have or whatever God gives you as a test and a part of the daily struggle of life. The very fact that you make choices for God in the midst of still the pain and suffering to worship him is the very, you could say, illumination that God has given you to say, yeah, he is more important than anything else in my life. He must be greater than your pain and suffering. Verse 25 through 27. We're almost done here. Verse 25 through 27. It's almost a strange text because you have to ask the question. Let me reread it to you. Ah, right over here. Of old thou tis found the earth. And the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. Thou will change them, and they will be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. And part of your praise is to recognize God, who He is, as the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the potter, and your clay. And you haven't broken yet in your pain and suffering. Why? Because he is providentially taking care of you. We must ask the question though in relationship to the context here. How is the spirits of the psalmist lifted up by meditating on the truth that God is the creator of the world? And then how does that help us? Well, you go to Hebrews chapter 1 and you see it repeated. Whenever you look at the Old Testament quoted in the new, you get greater light on what the psalmist was saying or any other offer of the Old Testament. And what is Hebrews chapter one? Well, it's the beginning of the statement and the sentence or phrase that says that Christ is greater. He's greater than the angels, he's greater than the temple, he's greater than the priest, he's greater than the sacrifices. He's greater because Christ himself is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things according to his own power in grace, and he upholds you in the time of pain and suffering. Right? You can take, as they say, that to the bank. So, therefore, Hebrews chapter 1 is focusing on Christ the Son, who is that glory of God. In human form. Very God and very man. Now God is speaking through the son. To you and I through the psalm. When we read our New Testament. As king the son rules over all that he created. And he will one day destroy the very things he called good. And even though heaven and earth will pass away. The eternal son of God remains. And you know what happens. Because the eternal son of God remains. Because you are a child of God, you remain with him. And therefore, in the midst of your pain and suffering, you will not die alone if that is the worst course that you take. Because God has ordained it. And in your pain and suffering, if it's for a long period of time, God remains. And therefore, you remain with him even while you are in the midst of it. I shall never leave you, nor shall I forsake you, he said to his disciples. And then he was lifted up to heaven. Two things that we take note of the psalmist and of the book of Hebrews when that same uh, two verses are quoted. Thou dost endure. Thou art the same. The earth is changeable. You are changeable. Disease changes within you. You have an ebb and flow within the seasons of suffering. But God never changes. That's your confidence. The immutability of God is your confidence. God, you do not change. You hear my prayers, O Lord, and I am confident that you will, at the time of your graciousness, you will hear me and answer me. The unchangeableness of God and his son is the hope of the psalmist while suffering. And even though the psalmist would have only see seen God, Yahweh and Jehovah as the one who would deliver him in his hope of deliverance, he speaks outside of himself when he speaks messianically and the author of Hebrews picks up on that, rephrasing that God is the creator. And by the way, The Son created the world by the Father's will through the Spirit. Because God's rule is eternal, the Son's rule is forever. And in verse 28, what does he say in the psalm? The children of thy servants will continue. The children of thy servants will continue. I reign, I will reign with him. I continue on this earth, my very breath is by the grace of God, by the power of God. Do you think that somehow God might miss a breath and you might stop breathing? I have sleep apnea. If I sleep on my back, I have a great percentage of chance to actually stop breathing in the middle of the night often. Do you think anybody who dies of sleep apnea actually had a breath that God forgot to count within that individual person? Now, and that is the same for those Christians who are born again unto a living hope, who are the children of God, who are under the hand of God, and even when their heart is grieved, God knows the paths you will walk. Therefore, the Christian's suffering is like the psalmist now. It is relieved in the knowledge of God's immutability, his unchangeableness. The unchangeable purpose of God to use Christ's suffering and your suffering to literally change the world. Imagine that. The world is watching you. That's why the psalmist speaks about the nations around verse 17, I believe. They see the glory of God in action as he upholds all things by the word of his power and even a man in great distress by his enemies, physically and spiritually affected by the world, and God hears them, and they see his faith, and the nations cannot say anything against him. Who has a faith like this? When a man is about to die, like my old friend Winifred Sears, and he memorized the verse that I gave him a week before, and he says, Todd, I'm going to go tonight, and he did. And he sings nothing but the blood of Jesus with the same joy that he had in his heart, probably when he was saved. When we suffer, our prayers should never be considered by the Christian as like a mist in the morning that vanishes away quickly. The Trinitarian persons will not change their mind about you. You get that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, will not change his mind about you. It is the blood of Christ that has sealed you with a new covenant of grace. And when you cry out to Christ, the Spirit of God lifts your prayers to him. And then he presents them to the Father. Listen to this. This is the last verse of the sermon. Paul says this to Timothy. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, and that is suffering, we shall reign with him. If we died, are you dying to Christ? And that means in the midst of your sorrow, your fever, your sleepless nights, you're like a bird hanging its head on the roof, and you're downcast and distressed like Washington? Are you so dejected that everyone has betrayed you, and yet you can say with Paul, I'm willing to die with him and take up my own cross? Paul said, I die daily that the life of Christ may be manifested in my mortal flesh. That is life indeed, even when your body is withering away. Contentment is the Christian who waits upon God in his or her suffering, praying without ceasing, acknowledging God's rights over you as creator, knowing his love for you is eternal, and at the right time, God will be gracious to you. Let's pray. Father, I give you praise this day because even if someone here is not suffering at this moment, as Martin Luther said, just wait a little while, it'll find you. And it finds all of us. But you know every little speck of grain of sand. You even direct the course of the thunderbolt. You summon the birds of prey and from a far off land, a man to fulfill your purpose. Indeed, O oh Lord, you hear our cries and suffering. And so, O Lord, when we come to these places of downcast, depression, despair, and distress. Lift us up in prayer. Let it be as an oracle spoken within our own hearts over and over again. God is great and greatly to be praised. He is able to lift us up in that moment of trial and let us live by faith in him, in him alone to the glory of God's Son. Amen.